All right, everybody, welcome to another great episode of the Retro Futurist Culture Podcast. Today, I am very excited. We have a very special guest here today. I have Tim Eldred. He's done works in comics and animation. And most importantly for today's purpose, Tim is a huge Armored Trooper Votums fan. In fact, I would say he is the fan that brought Armored Trooper Votums to the forefront in the West. Um, so we're going to be talking today with Tim Eldred, all about Armored Trooper Votums. How are you doing today, Tim? Hooray. Well, I just had my second COVID shot, so I'm a little uh, a little under 100%, but I can certainly sit here at my computer and talk about my favorite shows. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad you could uh, come on the show, even though you're not feeling 100%. Uh, you're feeling good enough to run a relay race, though, right? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I don't like my chances in a relay race. <laughs> Right. Um, so you got into, um, you broke into the comic book field. Uh, that's what you wanted to do. And you, you got into comics, you did a bunch of independent comics and you worked on all kinds of stuff. You did adaptations for um, Captain Harlock. You did some original stuff. You did Star Blazers, which I know you're a huge fan of. And I um, I linked on my Twitter feed. You just did a podcast talking about Star Blazers the other day. So anybody's interested, go to the RFC Twitter. There's a link to the show Tim just did on uh, Star Blazers. Yep. Uh, and then you um you got involved or you put together you were you were you you discovered Armored Trooper Votums. How did you discover Armored Trooper Votums? Let's let's just start right there. Uh the first time I saw it was a collection of VHS episodes taped off the air in Japan as uh as we all did back in the early 80s, early and mid 80s. Because that was the only way to get it at that time. There were no imports to speak of. Um, if you were lucky, maybe you caught something on VHS from, you know, an odd company here or there, but it was usually a cheap dub and it wasn't very good. And you just, um, you waited until um, somebody on your trading list got a new uh, off-air VHS from a friend in Japan. And then you started uh, trading copies and uh, a whole network developed this sort of underground tape trading network that laid the foundation for the import industry. Um, and I was very proud to uh, be a part of that. Um, so um, I had a couple of anime friends back in my hometown. And once in a while, somebody would get a new tape in and we'd uh, sit down and watch it together. And he managed to get the first five episodes of Armored Trooper Votums. And we watched them all back to back. And it was like a, someone had, uh, you know, ticked off a list. What are the things Tim likes? Let's put them all in one show. Yes. <laughs> so um, it was this amazing uh, hardcore sci-fi action show with elements of, uh, of a lot of my favorite uh, stories in them. And some really groundbreaking mecha designs that um, that made the show famous and continue to thrive today. Um, and the story just kept getting deeper and more complex uh, the more I saw of it. Um, over the next year or two after I saw the first five episodes, I got lucky enough to collect uh, batches of them that went from, you know, one... Uh, arc to the next and um you know just by sheer luck i managed to see it all 
in a couple of years. And then uh, when the TV series went off the air in 1984, uh, it shifted over to the direct-to-video format. And so uh, I was lucky again because at that time, there were companies that were just starting to import Japanese uh, VHS tapes. Um, they weren't translated in any way, but that didn't yeah, matter. Just raw, right? Yeah, that didn't matter to me at all. It still doesn't. I'm I'm fine with watching unsubtitled stuff uh, because you know that's how I got into it. And so, um, subtitles are not a uh, make or break for me. Um, so there was a, a well, there still is a company in Japan called Animate. They have a whole chain of stores. And they started advertising in uh, like Animage magazine, Animedia magazine. Their ads were in English. So they obviously knew that fans it, from overseas were looking at those magazines. Right. And they opened up what they called their world service. And you could uh, order directly from them. You could just send them a cashier's check made out in Japanese yen. And they would send you something very quickly. I remember. Um, sending out my check for the first Bodum's OAV, and it was in my hands in less than two weeks, which was a miracle. And at, at that time, those getting those tapes from Japan were not cheap. You probably paid upwards of around a hundred US, maybe not quite that much, not quite that high yet. I know, no. I know, around the mid to late '80s, they were they were pretty pricey. Yeah. Um... I haven't really tracked how the prices went from year to year, but I remember these not being as expensive as that. They were probably between 50 and 60. Okay. That's still, that's still, I mean, by comparison, the American VHS had just kind of started taking off and they were kind of pricey too, I guess. Some of them like, well, there was a transition in America where um, tapes were priced very high so that uh, only rental stores would actually purchase them. So it took a little while for prices to come down to the consumer level, but they eventually did, you know, settled in around 20 bucks or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Japanese tapes are still very expensive. You know, uh, I say tapes, I mean DVDs and Blu-rays, of course, uh, because their economic model for uh, profit making is very different. Um, we have the benefit of a, of a you know, television network or streaming service that will pay for the production cost. Um, but in Japan, they don't. You actually have to pay a TV network to run your show, which right. means you've got to uh, get all your production money and funding through production committees. And so one of the first um, products that they put out is a, a video software and that's why the prices are so high, because that's the first chance they have to actually make some income from it. Oh, yeah. So before we get further into your history, I just want to touch on what what is Votums for the people that are listening that may not even know. If you don't know right now, you are in the United States. Um, you can get all of the uh, TV series episodes and all the OVAs minus one. Uh, from a company called Made in Japan, or sometimes known as Sentai Filmworks. Uh, I'm just going to go over the plot, a short version of the plot. Uh, Votums, which stands for Vertical One-Man Tank for Offense and Maneuvers. They're like, think of a bigger than a power suit, 
but bulky like a tank. They're fast and maneuverable. Um, there was a hundred year war between the Gilgamesh and Balarant, and they've essentially become expendable cannon fodder and pawns to be sacrificed. Yeah, the this right, is a big scale story. We're talking Star Wars scale across right. the whole galaxy. And uh, as we get into the plot here, the right pawn in the right place can change the course of the game forever. When Votum's pilot Chirik Okuve is mysteriously transferred from his elite unit to a top secret mission behind his own side's lines, he quickly learns that something is very wrong. Betrayed and branded a traitor, Kiriko finds himself on the run from both sides as he seeks to unravel the truth behind the conspiracy and learn the secret behind the beautiful woman who seems to hold the key. Um, I know, I, you know, like I said, Tim earlier, um, the SDF Macross box set had just come out in the West and I was on Macross world and uh, central park media was about to release a Votum's box set in this cool ammo tin. And you were on some previews that I was watching on the old CPM website and some trailers. And I was like, well, this looks great. I'm, I'm in, I was just watching the trailers. I was totally in. And when I got that box set and I watched the first episode, I think I watched 20 episodes straight after that. <laughs> I couldn't stop. I like yeah. binged like mad because the story between the hard, kind of hard science action realisticness of the mecha and the ships and the intriguing story of what's going on here with uh, Kiriko Kuve and the woman he finds in the blue tube, who we learn later is Fianna. Uh, he actually names her. He, he that's right. that name on the spot. And that endears him to her because what we find out is that she's kind of like a replicant. She's an artificial person or, um, well, we're not really hundred percent certain, but she's enhanced to be, uh, really deadly piloting the, uh, the robots that we see in the show. Yeah. They call her a perfect soldier, but they have, uh, and much like you're, you're right about this, much like replicants, they have a, uh, a weakness. Replicants have a four year lifespan. The perfect soldier has to constantly be recharged with uh jigerium, which right. is like a blue, like crystal energy that they mine um, in the galaxy, particularly on the planet Udo, right? There's a big jigerium mine there. And that's one of the main plots of the show. Yeah, it's like their unobtainium. It's a very rare <laughs> mineral, and uh, it's it's critical for uh, for this character to um, to live a normal life, in as much as she can. Right. So Kiriko finds her, and he's betrayed by his unit. He escapes with his life, and he crash lands in Wudo City, which is a very uh, again a to make another Blade Runner reference, a very Blade Runner-esque giant city. Um, and it's almost like a semi, the life he lives in this beginning part is almost like an exploitation kind of film. He's like running around from biker gangs and gets involved with uh, what they call uh, battling, which is where they take votums and fight each other. And he meets uh, quite a cast of characters that become his almost like surrogate family throughout the series. Yeah. It's a post-war story in the beginning. So um, it's like society has collapsed. It's every man for himself in this um, broken down remnant society. And what we have is a fugitive story where he's constantly on the run 
for reasons that he doesn't really understand, but everybody seems out to kill him. And uh, he makes it his, um, his life purpose to figure out why. And ultimately, that um, makes him the most dangerous person in the entire galaxy. He goes through, he meets those friends. He, he meets a couple of friends. We have um, Vanilla, Kokona, and uh, what's the big guy's name? Goto. Go, go, Goto or Goto. Yep. And uh, Goto's like the guy that always seems to have connections. Vanilla seems like he uh, has a, a military past. We learn later he does. And then uh, Kokona's just a misplaced girl who's looking for a family or, you know, another group of people to hang out with. And they, they become friends. And at the end of that arc, though, um, you know, Kiriko ends up battling Fianna. She's, she's a pawn of uh, one of the sides here. And uh, they have Kiriko and her battle. And, uh, I don't want to spoil too much of that story arc, but he ends up in a whole nother place altogether for the second arc. They did, they did four 13 episode arcs. Um, yeah. Roughly 13 a piece. Um, yeah. There's like some uh, recap episodes. Yeah. It was a hedge against cancellation um, because nothing at the time was guaranteed to find its audience. And so they, they went in saying, uh, well, it was normal at the time to write shows with 13 episode arcs. And if you got to the end of an arc and your ratings and merchandising were doing well, then you got uh, permission to continue. And so they had this planned in from the beginning um, where the first arc was in one location and then the second arc went to a new place and then the third and then the fourth. Um, and that kept the, the story um, interesting because it got refreshed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the environment changed and a new cast of characters came with it. And uh, meanwhile, the mysteries were continuing to unfold and getting more and more intense. Um, and it just makes for a very watchable show. Yeah, it never it never gets boring at all. The minute it starts to stagnate. Um, it jumps the shark and we go. So in this, the second part of the series, stand up in a place called Cumin and it's almost like the Vietnam War. There's this royal faction that's fighting against the militarist faction. And it's like a, it's like apocalypse now. They're on crazy boats and the, they have votums that have special, uh, special adaptations to fight in the water. And yeah, that's right. The first arc is kind of like Blade Runner. The second one is kind of like Apocalypse Now. <laughs> right. And um, I'm off the top of my head. So I'm trying to remember. But there's the Prince of Cumin and he's trying to restore, you know, the classic bringing bringing it back to the way it used to be. And then the military is trying to push them forward into a more modern uh, era. And yeah, one of the themes is um, uh, of the, the show overall is now that um, this huge war is ostensibly behind us, what, how do we pick up the pieces and continue? Um, and the answers are going to be different everywhere we go. You know, some people are just struggling to survive. Other people are finding opportunities 
you know, to use power. Um, it's, um, it's just got so many different levels and it's so, uh, thoughtful and there's so much action at the same time. It's just got everything. Yeah. And we start to see the, um, what's going on with, with Proto One or Fiana. And there's almost like this secret war being fought. The war, the, the century war is over, but there's like a secret war going on. Um, and they, it's almost like they are trying to keep war going almost for profit or to catapult the galaxy or to take over the galaxy at some point and that they're using Proto-1, a.k.a. Fianna, and we meet another perfect soldier, Ypsilian, um, and they're using them as tools. Yep, because every anytime you have a power vacuum, you have opportunities to steal some, and uh, the more uh, trump cards you've got in your deck, the better off you're going to do. Um, and there's a, there's a big uh, puppet master behind all this too, which we really shouldn't talk about because that's major spoiler territory. But, um, you know, I think we've probably set the scene enough for somebody to, to <laughs> jump in and get interested. Yeah. Um, then what, so uh, let's just talk about before we get into the second half of the series, what, what was the most striking thing or what really drew you in as far as the mecha design and the ships what was what were the things that you really liked when you first saw this? You were saying that that it, t- it ticked all those boxes for you. Well, the mecha design was the first thing that grabbed me, and that was entirely uh, by design because these um, these shows back in the eighties were all made for uh, product sales. Yeah, like toy kits and models. Yeah, the model for this was Mobile Suit Gundam which surprised everybody by being kind of popular on TV. Not enough to save it from an early cancellation, but incredibly popular when it came to merchandising. Um, There were model kits uh, all over the place and they sold like hotcakes. And so that became like the driving force between uh, behind the uh, early eighties Mecca anime shows like Votum's. Um, so they would lead with, or, well, they would come up with a general concept and then turn it over to a mecha designer and a character designer to start fleshing out the world. Uh, now, the mecha designer for this show is a guy named Kunio Okawara, and the early 80s were his golden age. He designed all yeah, he, the major... Uh, he worked on all kinds shows. of stuff. Yeah, starting with Mobile Suit Gundam. That was his first big breakout. Um, so by the time he got to Votums in 1983, he had already, uh, designed several, uh, sort of families of Mecca. And what he wanted to do going into this one was to make them as realistic as he possibly could. Uh, number one, so that when toys and model kits came up, that they looked just like what you saw on TV. Um, but number two, so that it fit the, uh, the hyper gritty and realistic uh, worldview of the story. And uh, he was exactly right. I mean, you, the first Votum's thing I ever saw, even before the anime was one of the model kits and that robot design just jumped off the box at me. 
It was so intriguing and so real. It looked like something that could exist today. Um, and it's essentially timeless. It's one of those uh, classic anime designs that never looks antiquated. Um, yeah. You, you can look at the armored trooper today and it looks just as innovative as it did back then. It was a, and it, what, uh, like you were saying, in the realistic sense, they, um, it's very much like a actual piece of military equipment. It's modular. They paint them different colors depending on their environment. They'll adapt them. Um, they have like little rollers or treads in their feet to go faster. Some of them have little boosters to make quicker turns, but then they have ones that um, in the same family where they can change the rollers to almost more like a buoyant um, float type device so that they can go through marshes without sinking. They have detachable extra armor plates and various kind of the model kits go crazy with that. The various kind of weapons and guns they can switch out depending on which environment it is. And then there's upgraded models where they get better visibility or more armor plating or faster engine and better computers. The amount of design work that's that's uh in the design just for that for the scope dog itself is pretty insane. It's it's really Yeah, a lot of different loadouts for different purposes. And you can imagine how appealing that was when they finally started making video games <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think they've brought any of those to the united states and i think i might have played one or two import ones back in the day but not not long enough to really um have too much fun with it maybe one day we'll get a u.s uh votums game but i would love it I, for me titanfall 2 uh a u.s release game that gave me the votums feels because the mechs in that game or design similar to the Votums where not they're not very big so they have that Votum sort of feel mm-hmm. yeah um so then the show so that at the halfway point of this show we get through almost like the apocalypse apocalypse now arc and kiriko escapes and he he gets on a derelict ship with fiana and they're just floating through space and they think they're going to be all right and while they're floating through space, um, it's almost like somebody else is controlling this ship. And it starts playing like the fanfare music from Kiriko's old military unit, the Red Shoulders, and almost Yeah, this is him. where his personal history becomes more important to the story. Um, it was talked about quite a bit in previous arcs, but now it comes to the forefront. He's a member of this elite unit called the red shoulders. And they call them that because the shoulder armor of their scope dogs was painted red. I mean, the robot itself is green. And so they painted this, this blood red shoulder on them, uh, sort of like the green berets, except they were extremely vicious. Um, They would kill anyone who got in their way, uh, friend or foe. And being a part of that was very traumatic for him. So to have it suddenly uh, thrust back in his face is a significant moment. Yeah, he wanted to forget about all of that. And so they end up, um, this ship takes them to a planet and they crash land on this almost barren, desolate planet. And there's this entire burned down cityscape. And the planet is called Sunsa. And that's, that's this third arc of the series. That's right. It's a desert planet. 
which used to be a green garden planet, but the Red Shoulders attacked it at the very end of the war, and they did so much damage that uh, they destroyed the atmosphere. Um, and that's what actually brought the war to a truce. You know, destroying yeah. planets was a whole new level of things entirely. And so not only has he been confronted with his past, now he's been plopped down on a planet that he helped to ruin. Um, and we get a lot of the backstory in the direct videos uh, there are two of them specifically to explore this. One of them happens before the show. One of them happens during the show. Um, and they were animated a year or two after the show, and they, as a result, look a lot better. Right. The OVAs, that would be the um, the last red shoulder, right? And then um, Roots of Ambition. Roots of Ambition chronologically is the one that, comes first Free, first the, right yeah. and then the last red shoulder takes place in between the uh voodoo and cumin arcs i just That's watched um like i said i, re I rewatched the summary movies of the tv series and i rewatched last red shoulder um yeah they had an interesting pattern back in uh this time in japan where um tv series were not released yet because everybody considered them to be too expensive. Right. It's a lot of tape. It's a lot of, because uh, they would only put four four episodes on a tape, and it was 52 episodes, right? Yeah, this was a big one, especially. Um, so it took them a little while to get to the point where they could put out TV series on VHS and expect people to buy them. Um, so what they did in the interim was they would release like two volumes that was a summary of the TV series, and then they would follow that up with a new original story. And they did that for Votums three times in a row. And um, so at what point, um, before we get into the the final arc, so you're following Votums, you're getting VHS copies, or, uh, you know, second, third gen copies of the series. You right. started ordering some of the OVA uh, VHSs. And then you sort of became the authority on votums in the West. Uh, you you created almost like your own fan um, magazine for votums. Well, like a, a one issue that you uh, that you would distribute to fans that so they could learn more about votums. Tell us how that whole project started. Well, the more I saw about it, uh, the more I wanted to. Um kind of document it because there was no translation available. And so uh, I got what books I could and just kept watching the episodes over and over and over and trying to figure out, okay, this happened here as a result of something we saw five minutes ago. So if I puzzle that out, then I can figure out what that thing was and how it led to this. And in that way, I could... Um, sort of work out what the story was. And nobody else was doing anything like that with Votums. Um, and I loved it so much, I just wanted to share it with everybody. <clears throat> so at the time, I was a member of what we used to call an APA. Do you know what an APA is? Have you ever heard of that? I haven't heard that term, no. All right. Well, it's, it's an acronym, APA, which stood for Amateur Press Activity. 
And it was literally what we had instead of Facebook and Twitter. And the way it would work is one person would be um, considered the, the leader. We called him an editor. Um, but they wouldn't edit anything. They would just take your contribution and you'd send one in every couple of months or so, writing whatever you want within the topic, just like a Facebook group. And then the editor would take everybody's individual contribution and collate them all into the complete APA. So you'd send in, let's say you're tw you've got 20 members of, in the club, right? You'd make 20 copies of your contribution. You'd send it in, and then what you'd get back is an APA with everybody's contribution in it. Um, and that was a ton of fun. It was, it was like being in a club, but not, um, not in person. Um, and so if your topic was anime, as ours was, then everybody would be writing about their own favorite anime uh, or a manga that they liked. And, of course, Votums was the one I chose. So I started this fanzine in the form of contributions to this APA. Uh, and I wanted to go as far as I could with it. Um, at the time, my career was graphic design. I worked for print um, print companies or companies that, that published like newspapers and did print media. And so I had access to a lot of high-end equipment for typesetting. Um, so I was able to put together something pretty slick, certainly um, far in advance of what I was seeing, you know, from other uh, clubs. You know, they would do newsletters or they would do an occasional little mini zine or something. But uh, I wanted to just take it as far as I possibly could. And what that eventually led to was this giant book, which I called the Votum's Viewer's Guide. And at first it was only shared through the APA, but then when it was all finished, I made it available to anyone who wanted to buy a copy. <clears throat> so I sold them through the mail. And um, a few dozen copies went around. You know, it wasn't a huge number, but it was enough because uh, copies got to this uh, up-and-coming import company called Central Park Media. Um, later, they would start releasing tapes under the name U.S. Manga Corps. And so um, because I had put so much work into this viewer's guide, they thought, this must be a really special show. We should try and get it. <laughs> yeah. So they contacted me, and um, I started doing freelance work for them. And that included finally getting to create materials for the show itself when they got the rights to release it. Um, and then there's another thing that happened, which is even more interesting in my view. Um, there was another company called Ionis Publications. <clears throat> they are known primarily for a magazine called Protoculture Addicts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the first anime magazines that kind of went mainstream. Yeah, they started out as a, as a big Robotech fan magazine, and then as Robotech, you know, left the air and more anime was becoming uh, aired on TV or brought over and fan-subbed and everything, yeah, they started covering all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um. So that the company that uh, published that was called Ionis or Ionis Publications. They're based in Canada. 
And when they get a copy of the viewer's guide, they have the same reaction. This looks really cool. We should try to get the rights to make a role-playing game because that's something else that they did. They wanted to make anime role-playing games. Um, so they put together a pitch for this game uh, where they created scenarios and rules and all that stuff. And they sent that to Sunrise in Japan, which was the licensor of the show. And Sunrise said, no, we're, we're not really interested in doing this. But so much work had gone into this game proposal that um, Ionis said, you know, we don't want to let this drop. So let's change a few things. Let's give it a new name and then release it as an original thing. And the name of that was Heavy Gear. Ah, uh, yeah. And that became an inspiration for a lot of stuff on its That's own, right. too. <laughs> Yeah, it it was sort of um didn't didn't you get to work okay so they did the tabletop game but didn't you get to work on an animated version of said heavy gear? Absolutely did. Um the other thing that was happening with me during this time was that I was making the uh the move from working on comic books professionally to drawing storyboards for TV cartoons and I got extremely lucky and ended up at Sony Animation Studio in 1996. And a few years later, they landed the rights to make a Heavy Gear TV series. And so I got to draw, essentially, Votum's Mecca in a TV show for a whole year as part of my career. And that was all because you loved Votum's. It was all because uh, I turned my dedication into a physical thing that these different companies could look at. And it uh, it made them aware that they had this uh, amazing property that they could go and, uh, and obtain, or at least try to. Um, and so uh, I benefited tremendously from that. I'm still kind of amazed that it happened. It seems magical. That's so awesome. But then, so Heavy Gear comes out, it becomes its own thing. You worked with the tabletop design. You worked on the show. But then later on, there was a uh, Armor Trooper Votum's tabletop book that came out that you also had a hand in. And that was actually licensed through CPM and Sunrise, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, CPM, Central Park Media, had the rights to do um, different projects based on the show. Uh, I think Ionis got to... Um, sunrise before CPM was um, fully signed on, so to speak. Uh, and so those rights were not available yet. But when they were, a company called Artel Sorian Games stepped in and they hired me to help uh, write material for their game book. Which I'm and I didn't thinking. write any of the game uh, itself because that's not my area of expertise. But I essentially created a, a new version of the viewer's guide that occupied a large part of that book. I was going to say, I'm, I'm flipping through it right now, and this is basically if you wanted a Western English-translated guide to Armor Trooper Votums, the original series, uh, this role-playing game covers all of that and then some. Yep. Um, this book is now out of print. I just happened to go on eBay to see, because I was like, well, let me see. I, I bought a copy years ago, but on eBay, new ones are going for like $250. So... <laughs> um, if you're looking for one, that's the only place. And Amazon, and there, the cheapest I saw was 150. I was like, wow! So huh. it, it must be out of print at this time. Yeah, of course. 
Um, and that's still around. Right. And then central park media went belly up in 2009. Thanks everybody for listening to the retro futurist culture podcast. We're going to take a break now to check out an ad from ruminations radio network. We know you've been scared watching horror movies by yourself. Well, now you don't have to. Hang out with Ruminations of Red Rum. All things horror, from movies to the latest spooky games we've played. Come hang out. But hurry. The killer's behind you! Welcome back, everybody, to the Retro Futurist Podcast, part of the Ruminations Radio Network. We're coming back at you. Tim Eldred, Armor Trooper Votums, and go! All right, Tim. So when we last left, we were talking about the role-playing game, how Votums led you to helping uh, create the heavy gear role-playing game and show. And then there was actually an Armor Trooper Votums role-playing game licensed through Central Park Media, who had now had the distribution rights to the Armor Trooper Votums anime. Um, and that role-playing game is now out of print and defunct, possibly, because uh, Central Park Media went out of business. And then Votums disappeared from the West for since that box set came out and uh, it's now been uh, picked up again by Sentai Filmworks, AKA made in Japan. And they were kind enough to not only bring us all the Votums TV episodes, but also all of the Votums OVAs minus one minor series that I think the problem for a while was that they could not get the masters, but I think they are going to re-release um, that one in Japan because I think they found the Masters, and that would be uh, Armor Hunter, Melolink. There's a trailer for a new Japanese all-inclusive Votums Blu-ray set that shows mm-hmm. Melolink on there, so I don't know if they found the Masters, but anyway, um, during that vacuum of Votums in the West, did you work on any interesting projects? Uh, I didn't work on any Votums projects after all that, um, but we did leave one out that was really important to me, and that was a graphic novel. Oh yes, let's get, let's get to that. Your um, this would be an adaptation of one of the OVAs, right? Yes, exactly. Um, one of the dreams that I had when I was watching Votums for the first time was somehow getting to draw it, because I've been an artist ever since I could hold a pencil and. Um, what I, uh, what I wanted to do as a career was either comics or TV animation. I ended up doing both, which is pretty nice. Um, and that's a whole different topic for a different show. Um, but I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I could somehow get in a position to work on a Bodum's comic book for America? Because it was, um... It was right in my wheelhouse in terms of the stuff that I like to draw. And when the OAVs started coming out, um, of course, there was no translation. And then they never were available until much more recently. Right. Um, it's only in the past couple of years we got the OAVs here. Yep, exactly. And so Central Park Media could never get those. And I thought the best thing to do to debut as a comic would be an adaptation of that prequel so that everybody could see where the story begins. Um, there would be a stand in for not having the anime itself. And so the title I gave it was Supreme Survivor. And this was a roughly uh, 100 page book 
that started with an adaptation of that and then went into the first TV episode. Um, the original plan was to release it as a monthly series. So the first quarter of that book came out as an individual comic. Um, but the timing was really bad on that because it was mid-90s and the comic book industry was floundering in America. And it was much more cost-effective just to draw the whole thing as a single project and release it as a graphic novel. So that's how it came out. Yeah, it's it's beautiful, too. It's a shame that it's, again, out of print. This was something else that was licensed through did CPM Central Park Media publish this themselves? Yeah, it says CPM Comics, so they were they had their own yeah, publishing. Yeah, that's right. One the of time. the things that um, that I did for a while while I was a full time comic book artist was I helped to create comics for CPM. Uh, they started up their own imprint, which was called CPM Comics, and I had two partners that I worked with, and we created comics based on. Project Echo and MD Geis and Galforce and uh, Cyber City. And then finally, as a result of all that, I got to draw the Votums comic. Yeah, and it's really well done. I was I was really excited when I found a copy of it at, at one of my local comic book places here. It was this is probably close to when that CPM box set came out that I found this graphic novel, so probably almost 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. and I still have it. And I and I I found the role playing game a couple years later. Same thing, a local game shop had it. Um, pretty much at the time, anything Votums I could get my hands on, I was picking up. They had come out with uh, Yamato Toys released a giant one twelfth scale scope dog, and uh, I had that sitting on my shelves for a long time. I eventually gave it to a friend. It was really neat, but it's so big and bulky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we haven't even talked about toys and models yet. But oh, they were, man, there's so they're, many. They're so, yeah, they're countless. There are so I, many. I gave up trying to keep track of them a long right? time ago. Yeah, I, I kind of gave up on collecting toys. Um, so you uh, you worked we worked, you worked you on the graphic novel adaptation of the OAVs. And before we talk about the rest of the uh, OAVs, I wanted to get to the last arc of the TV series because I find it, a lot of people, there's some people that that say the show jumps jumps the shark at this point, and I would I would completely disagree. I think I think this was all written with that in mind, and uh, the fourth arc is God Planet Quint, and at the end of the Sunsa arc, you know they tell him go to Quint, all your answers will be there. That's and right. um, yeah, he, he learns a lot of important things on Sansa. Right. And, um, it uh, the mystery just gets deeper and deeper because of that. And that's what keeps you like if you're watching it, especially if you're watching the TV episodes, the 52 episodes. I guarantee you, if you start watching one one night, you're gonna watch like 12, and then you're gonna go, "Oh crap, I gotta go to bed." Like cause you're <laughs> just gonna keep clicking next because you're like, "What happens?" This is so. I was so addicted. Um, for that reason, especially the first couple arcs was kind of addicting, but by the time I hit Sunset, I, I couldn't put it down. I think I watched the Sunset and Quent arcs in like one weekend uh, when wow. I first got the box set. I, I literally just binged the whole thing. Now imagine what it was like for those of us who had to just wait for months and months. Oh, right. No, yeah. No, I remember getting into certain anime coming out of Japan in the late 80s, early 90s, and having to wait long, long times for to see new footage or you would only get 
uh, Zeta Gundam. I saw the first four or five, sort of like you. I saw the first four or five episodes of Zeta Gundam. No translation or whatever. I was floored. It was a year after that before I saw another block of episodes. And it would probably be 10 years before I finally saw the whole series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I feel your pain on some of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's what made it really fun. Because mm-hmm. when you um, when the waiting was over and something rolled in, it was like um, seeing friends again. True, yeah. You could see the next phase of a story. And um, it would answer questions, of course, but it would also bring up new ones. Um, and you just couldn't wait to get the next batch of episodes, but you had no choice. You had to wait. Um, and that just made it sweeter when they finally arrived. Yeah. So in the uh, in the series, we get to God Planet Quent, and um, that's where earlier in the series, during the second arc, Kiriko serves on the human mercenary side um, with a guy named Shako, who is a, a Quentian, and they're like these larger, larger than normal humans. I don't even know what we call them. They call them Quentmans. Um, you know, they're all like six foot five or taller they're very large compared to the other people and everybody on that planet is that side and this is a planet that has decided to reject technology and even though they make the best mercenaries their people do they're they're hired as mercenaries by various militaries the general people of this planet have rejected technology and have gone into hiding for a reason and that's why kiriko is there to find out um, yeah, this was once a society that was the most powerful in the whole galaxy, and now they're just um, like these it, desert hermits. Yeah, they. I was going to say they live like desert nomads, and right. uh, it's it's at this point of the show that it really takes a crazy turn. And I and I I think this. I mean, this blew me away the first time I saw it, and it it gives me Kubrick like feelings like about two thousand one because. Here's where Kiriko finds out that he goes to meet what's essentially they're calling God is this giant computer in space and that Kiriko is not a normal person. Well, you're not worried about spoilers at all here, are you? Yeah. Hey, this show is very, very old. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, um, should definitely. I I usually spout that at the beginning. Maybe I'll put another spoiler warning on the episode notes itself, but yeah, the uh, moratorium for spoilers is, is we're at, we're on a show that's almost 40 years old, right? It's going to celebrate its 40th anniversary in another two years. Yeah. 83. Yeah. So, uh, Kiriko finds out that he's not normal that he is something more and hence why he's been able to survive all these crazy battles. Um, yeah. He's and- essentially unkillable at this point. Right, everything, nothing, nothing has been able to take him out. O- almost take him out has has been the norm, but nothing has has ever taken him down. Mm-hmm. And when he goes to meet the maker, this giant computer system, and it reminds me of the scene in two thousand one where Dave is is inside of Hal nine thousand, and Kirko does almost the same thing. He just starts pulling the plug on this whole thing. He's like, "No, I don't want any part of this." It's a the maker wants him to take over wants kiriko to to rule the galaxy and take over he wants to basically turn kiriko into his puppet yeah 
And Kiriko doesn't want anything to do with that. He doesn't want anything to do with anything other than Fianna. Yeah. <laughs> all he wants to do is live in peace, and that's all Kiriko's yeah, he's, looking he's for. He's lived most of his life as a tool for other people's ends, and he really wants that to stop. And uh, he dismantles the device, much to the dismay of uh, Colonel Roshina, who we forgot to mention earlier, uh, who's kind of been strung along as a secondary puppet master in this whole thing. Yeah, this is a guy who spent his entire career uh, basically following Kiriko around, trying to figure out what's so special about him. Um, And he reaches the point of obsession where he just completely turns over his, um, his loyalties to the other side of the war. Yeah. He uh, flips. Doesn't he flip sides twice? He goes from, (laughs) he goes from the, from the Ballarant to the Gigamesh and then back to the Ballarant or. No, he starts on the Gilgamesh side and flips to the Ballarant side. Okay. And then he becomes part of basically the, the secret society side. Um, uh, no, he's never allied with them. Okay. In fact, his original mission is to expose them. And that's how he bumps into Kiriko. That's right. And um, so the, the series ends there with Kiriko dismantling the god computer. And the um, basically what happens here is he wants to go and live in peace. And the galaxy is still fighting over things and another war breaks out. Right. And that's a direct result of everything that happens on Quint. Um, Kiriko rises to like ultimate power as a result of um, meeting this computer god. And the, um, the two armies call a truce and ally themselves to go and, uh, and stop him. And so this creates the foundation for a whole new war that starts after a year after the show ends. Yeah. And so then as they, uh, they never did another TV series sequel, but there was a lot of OAV sequels. And uh, I wanted to just <clears throat> touch on a couple of those. I'm sure you've seen all of them as well. Many uh, times. Right? Uh, the first one I'm going to bring up is only because um, there's no way to watch this one right now. So we're just going to kind of skim over. There was a sort of a side story called uh, Armor Hunter Mellow Link, and it was about a soldier who's in a not quite a similar place as Kiriko, but his unit is framed for something. And uh, he kind of goes on a revenge streak, and instead of using a uh, an AT, he just uses a giant battle rifle and fights multiple enemies without using an AT at all, but with using his clever wits. He's a specialist in fighting uh, ATs hand-to-hand. Yeah. And it's a really, really neat and creative series. The uh, The battles are pretty fun. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, so if the rumor's true that they did find the Masters and they're, they're going to be on the new Japanese Blu-ray set, I can only hope that... Um, Made in Japan slash Sentai Filmworks can bring that series out over here. Um, yeah, that's exactly why it hasn't appeared before now. Right. I heard they they possibly were lost in a fire. But there's been lots of stories. I had a 
Robert Woodhead from Animago, and when they were over in there in Japan looking for the masters of Maddox, they actually found the master of Project Echo, which was thought to be missing as well. So sometimes yeah. things are just misplaced. So that's really exciting. Yeah, hopefully there was a backup of Armor Hunter Melolink somewhere or, or some source that they can do a remaster from. Well, they definitely have the Masters, and they're definitely going to be on the, this new set. Right, the which, Japanese Blu-ray set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which may be out now. I haven't checked lately. And Either then, way, it's, uh, it's very, very expensive. Yeah. And then we've got, and, and again, the, the next few OVAs, they kind of jump time different times. So we got Shining Heresy which was a uh, sequel to the original show. Um, Shining Heresy is um, roughly 20 years later. Right. And Uh, then uh, at a later time, there was a prequel to that called The Phantom Arc. Or was that a sequel? It's really hard to remember all this. Stuff that now. one's a sequel because they flipped. Yeah. You had Shining Heresy came out, and then after that, they did uh, the Paleson Files, which was almost like the prequel to Roots of Ambition. That actually happens between Roots of Ambition and the first episode of the TV series. Okay, yeah. Um, however, I have to put a big caveat on that because a lot of really weird stuff happens in that that is outside continuity. Yeah. I'd, and so it, it's almost better to consider that uh, like an alternate universe story. I was going to say, there's a couple of things that they do in that. I'm like, that's not, that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't fit with the story. Yeah. But um, that's kind of. And there were typical. creative decisions they made with it that I didn't really like. Um, for example, they replaced the whole sound effects catalog. Oh, right. Mm hmm. And so the really distinctive sounds of the robots were no longer there. And that's just like replacing a voice actor. Yeah. Um, and we also got a couple side stories. Case Irvine is not even really, um, has nothing to do with the main Votum story, but it's kind of a fun, uh, a fun Votum's show. It's a little more cheeky. Yeah. One of the interesting things about all of these spinoffs is that, there's a huge galaxy of stories that could happen. Um, But for one reason or another, they've always been reluctant to make them. And I'm not sure why, because right after the TV series came out, there was a series of novels called Blue Knight Berserga. And as far as I can tell, they did really well. And they Um, turned that into a a video game, too, on PlayStation. I think yeah, I had um, they released a- um, they released some capsule toys uh, of the PlayStation or maybe they weren't quite capsule. They were little tiny. My local comic book shop got them and I picked them all up. The Berserga little figurines that went with the game that was based on those books. Yeah, they've done a lot more than that. There, there are model kits. There are much bigger figures. Um, there's the video game, as you said, there's there have been support books. Uh, for hobbies and um, what it came down to is it was popular enough to create this whole wave of merchandising, but they never got around to making an anime, Um, which to me would have been a slam dunk because you get to the late eighties, Votums is rising in popularity and the time was ripe 
I think, to make a whole new series out of it. Mm-hmm. And they did uh, Merrillink, and Merrillink was great, but they just kind of stopped there. Um, and then when they came back to make more, they were all focused on Kiriko. And for my money, Kiriko's story was over at that point. So, yeah, I was I was gonna say the uh, some of the sequel OVAs, you almost get like it's almost a fatigue. I, I still enjoy them, but they spend a lot of time lamenting about things that Kiriko has no control over or things he could have control over but doesn't want to do. And people are obsessed with this whole bit of that story. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's something from the director, Yusuke Takahashi, like wanting to add more to that character. Or if that is Kiriko that popular with the Japanese fans that they want to keep keep him in the story i don't know exactly what's going on there um he still has attempted to make original votum stories in other forms there have been uh like novels for example and uh three or four years ago he published what looked like a proposal for a whole new story set in the same universe but that is just still limited to that one book um Somebody keeps saying, no, no, we need more Kiriko stories. And to me, it feels like um, Sunrise, just not being comfortable with trying to uh, rebrand what has been popular for a very long time. So they just want to keep going back to the same character. Same format, um, yeah. I feel yeah, like the um, the Votums themselves, the Scope Dogs, there's enough there for enough. I mean, there's enough story in just the history of those units or i mean i don't know there's a i'm like you i can my the the amount of stories i think you could tell in that universe are crazy i don't know why they keep chasing the one uh the one main character but i you know it's hard to tell hard to say what what the fan base the fan base here and the fan base in japan are probably quite different um as far as what they like well it also keeps popping up in um various video games, you know, like the Super Robot War style video games where you've got a bunch of different mecha right. from all these different shows teaming up. Um, Votums is always in there somewhere, which is pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I'm glad, really glad that they're keeping it alive in one form or another. But I think the key to um, a long-term success from this point on has to be creating a whole new story that Mm -hmm. isn't reliant on what came before. Yeah. It would be nice to see them move, move forward another hundred centuries. Well, they actually tried that. Um, There was a series of novels that did that called equal Ganeshis. And I've I've got them. I've never been able to translate them, but um, it's one of those sort of next generation stories where everything is so far in the future it doesn't resemble what you know. Do they still have um, ATs though? Um they have sort of mecha. I I didn't really see ATs as we know them. I think at that point the perfect soldier technology has kind of uh, turned superseded. Yeah, they've turned people into weapons. Into the mecha. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, and, that, you know, obviously I'd like to see more that. on it, but uh, it's, it's a case where um, 
it's rebranded to a degree where you could just rename it something else and it would there would be no difference that's that that sounds fun so uh i'm just gonna finish up just asking you a couple questions about votums and maybe other sci-fi in general so uh armor trooper votums favorite story arc or ova what what is your favorite part of votums as far as the animated versions what's your favorite storyline or uh or or direct to video um i think my favorite part of the story has to be the sunsa arc because it's uh it's very intense it's very personal the number of uh characters is uh, is smaller for the most part mm-hmm. and you get more growth in that one uh and it's just really cool to see robots fighting in a desert i noticed rewatching it i also noticed that um the animation quality jumps up a lot in that arc the first arc you know they always they always put a lot of uh time into the first couple episodes to get people hooked and then like the you know because they're trying to rush to get the the show done um but i noticed when we got to the sunsa arc which is episode starts at episode 27 the animation quality jumped up like big time um, well, the design I, changed quite a bit because a different director stepped in and uh, uh, a lot of things were redesigned to fit his style. Ah, that would make sense. I mean, there's a lot more color. There's a lot more shading. There's a lot more special effects going on. Um, it just I just remember being like, wow, this this and it's old animation. I'm going to air quote this old, uh, but I still think it's it's almost timeless in its design and its look. Um, the name of that director is Moriyasu Taniguchi. And the next time we saw work from him was on a show called SPT Leisner. Oh, yeah, which I, that's been on my list of, I want to see this show at some time. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, you definitely want to see it. It's the show that came, um, well, the show that came after Votums was called Panzer World Gallant, which is also really good. Um, and then Leisner came after that. All of those shows were created by the same guy, Ryosuke Takahashi. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did and another one later, Gasaraki or something. That's right. Yeah, I, I saw, I think, a few episodes of that and because uh, I, I borrowed it from a friend, so I need to get back to that one too. Yep. Okay, so Sunsa, if Sunsa's your favorite part of the TV series, what would be your second favorite um, OVA? Out of the OVAs, what's your favorite? Um... I like The Last Red Shoulder quite a lot. Um, but I think I have to go with uh, The Roots of Ambition just because of what it represents. But it's yeah. the very beginning of the story. Um, it's super intense. And I got to live with it for you know the whole month or... Well, it was more than a month. It was probably four months. I got to live with it for that whole time, reinterpreting it as a comic. And so it really endeared itself. Um, but another one that I want to highly recommend is the big battle. Mm, that's my favorite of the OVAs. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, it takes place uh, sort of as an epilogue, although if you watch the final TV episode, there's a one-year jump after the story, the main story finishes. It jumps forward a year into a smaller epilogue. And big battle is one of the things that takes place during that jump. 
And that, I think, is the very best example of the animation um, quality of Votums in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, Every line is in the right place. Every character is always on model and looks really good. The action is great. Um, It's a simple story, easy to follow. Um, And uh, it's just a lot of fun. You can sort of um, watch it all by itself and not worry too much about uh, connection to other things. Yeah, and it's just uh, it's a fun story, and like you said, the, the animation's top notch. That was that was peak sunrise animation. Absolutely. And then I'm going to say that my least favorite story is the Phantom Arc, which, which is, is the very last canonically one in... the the last arc. Yeah. yeah. Um. I was really excited when it came out because, you know, even though it was another Kiriko story, it was going to wrap um, some things up and it was going to give us one more look at at this world. Um, but uh, it didn't really do anything new. It was sort of a best hits kind of revisit, you know, where for no great reason, they just arbitrarily went back and revisited all the places they went in the TV series. Um, so it was essentially just fan service and it was very unsatisfying. So I'm, I'm glad you said that. Cause I felt pretty similar. I was like, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not a great way to go out. So no. you can, uh, you can kind of ignore it. Yeah. Know? I mean, for me, I think the, um, the original series, the original TV series itself is like timeless. I've watched it upwards of 10 times all the way through. And each time I watch it, I find something interesting and new or just like, wow, like I can't believe this, this really pushes the genre um, of sci-fi and even just like all of the underlying themes about like, like you said, being used as, as a pawn and, you know, trying to just, get out of something it's just a it's a great series um all right tim we're gonna wrap this up i wanted to really thank you for coming on the show where can people find out about you your art what projects you're working on anything else like that well i've made it really easy uh at the beginning of the year i started up a new website which is an archival site for all the stuff that i've worked on going back to when i was 12 years old um so there's like 40 plus years of stuff that's sitting in my storage unit and uh, I'm pulling it out, you know, one project at a time. Some of it is completely obscure stuff that nobody ever saw before. Other things are world famous, like some of the TV cartoons I've worked on. And I'm just covering all of it, um, you know, one month at a time. I update the site on the first of every month. And uh, I also use it as a chance to talk about my favorite anime shows. and I haven't gotten to Votums yet, but when I do, boy, look I, out. I noticed. <laughs> I was on your side. I was like, where's the Votums? And then I thought, oh, he probably hasn't got to the Votums yet. Yeah. There, there are other things I want to do first. You know, stuff that has been sitting, waiting to be translated for years and years and years. Um, so I'm going to get some of that out of my system. And then I'll dig into Votums and start uh, you know, pulling up some of the really rare things and documenting all the books and all the, th- the products that I've got here and um, just making it a big Votums party online. That's so that's awesome. called Art Vault, 
and you can find it at timeldred.com. And it's got links to um, the big uh, webcomic projects that I've done over the past several years. And it's also got a link to my Space Battleship Yamato website, which is coming up on its 20th anniversary. That's awesome. All right, everybody. Once again, I want to thank Mr. Tim Eldred for spending some time with us here at the Retro Futures Culture Podcast to talk about all things Armor Trooper Votums. If you haven't seen at least the Armored Trooper Votums TV series, and you're a fan of hard science fiction anime with really cool realistic animation and a mystery story, go check it out. You can get the Blu-rays on uh, Amazon or directly through madeinjapan.net or Sentai Filmworks. Um, check that out. Again, Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you.